Hey, everyone, and welcome to the State of the Art Podcast with me, your host, Ethan Appleby. I'm very excited to bring you along as I dive into conversations with amazing people who are at the intersection of art and technology. Each week, you'll hear a different angle about how tech is bringing radical change in the way all of us interact with art. We have on artists to first-time collectors, as well as CEOs from some of the top digital art companies. We'll also look at the effects social media sites and crowdsourcing platforms are having on the art world and explore how other creative industries, such as music and fashion, were democratized using technology. So before we get started, I want to ask, did you catch our earlier episode with Patreon, the site that gets creators paid by running a membership business for their fans? Look, we liked it so much and we're so inspired that we created our own Patreon page. Really, we did it for two reasons. One, it lets us connect with you, our fans and listeners. And two, it helps us continue to make great content, get on better speakers, and find creative ways to continue this conversation with art and tech. So look, you can pledge as little as a dollar and become one of our patrons. To do so, check out patreon.com slash state of the art. In this episode, I'm excited to welcome the director of Sotheby's Institute of Art, Los Angeles, Jonathan T.D. Neal. Jonathan's diverse background in education, journalism, art, and architecture makes him uniquely suited to comment on large trends in the art world and how the education system is supporting these artists. He recently started offering an MA in Art Business, Information Systems, and Technology. Yes, that is an art and tech degree at Sotheby's. With its first students coming in this fall, I cannot wait to see what comes out of this program. Today, I talked to Jonathan about what motivated him to create the new master's program, how he sees technology changing the career paths of artists and art students, and what he sees as the big predictions in the art and tech space over the next few years. So please, allow me to welcome today's guest, Jonathan T.D. Neal. Jonathan, it is great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Ethan. I'm glad happy to be here. It's it's exciting because you know I've I've wanted someone um, sort of from the education space on on the program, and we haven't had that yet. And and what you're doing at Sotheby's uh, is really exciting. So I want to dive into that. But first, uh, tell us a little bit about your background. Uh, yeah, short version or long version? Short version. Because we don't have much time, I'll stick with the short yeah. version. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so maybe I'll maybe I'll sort of run run the clock backwards. Um, uh, I began as director of Sotheby's Institute of Art in Los Angeles uh, in late 2012, early 2013. Uh, we're a partnership with Claremont Graduate University and the Drucker School of Management originally here in California. And the reason for that was is Sotheby's Institute has campuses in New York and in London. And we looked at the demographics of the students who came to those programs and we were getting very few people from the West Coast. And uh, you sit around the room and you ask why that is, and it can't be that the Rocky Mountains are so high or that people on the West Coast are not interested in art and culture. Um, it just turns out that people who live on the West Coast of the United States don't leave the West Coast of the United States to go to graduate school or to, 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 to do much else. Why, why um, would you leave the sun, you know? That's exactly, exactly right. So, um, and so we started this program uh, and, uh, and have had some, some good success with it so far, bringing an art business program and an arts management program um, to Southern California. Prior to that, uh, I had worked with Sotheby's Institute in New York. Uh, I co-founded an art consulting company with 
a woman named M. Franklin Boyd, uh, and that was called Boyd Level. And we built collections for private collectors and some and some companies. And uh, and then prior to that, uh, I had been uh, planning on going into academia um, as an art historian. I did PhD work at Columbia University, got my doctorate there. Uh, which itself was a left turn from an original interest in architecture. I had gone to architecture school and thought I was going to be an architect and practiced that for a short period of time in New York City. And after picking out carpet colors and industrial doorknobs and other details for large uh, commercial and uh, institutional projects, uh, decided that that wasn't the life for me. Um, and throughout most of that time, I've been uh, also a professional art critic and uh, an editor for Art Review Magazine. So I spent a lot of time in studios and galleries and museums looking at and writing about uh, the, the contemporary art world. That's great. I was going to ask why you decided to get into academia, but it sounds like you had gotten a PhD, you were thinking about it, then went into consulting, but probably in the back of your mind, we're always sort of thinking, you know, I'd like to get back into, into academics. Yeah, that's right. And I, and I think that the, you know, interestingly, um, my background in art history uh, was at a period of time that was fairly hostile to the market um, and the idea of the art market. And, um, and then when I, when I finished up and, and started this consulting company and really was in New York in the mid 2000s, um, during a, a kind of first art world boom. That was really the, the, the growth of the, the art fairs that began in 2002, 2003, like Art Basel Miami and Freeze. Um, you, that was the first moment when people were staying around uh, saying, well, I want to be a collector, but I don't know how to find artists. And I knew a lot of artists are saying, well, I want to be an artist, but I don't know how to find collectors. And you thought, oh, well, there's a, there's a, there's a mediating role to be played here. Sure. And so, yeah, and so and so that so that worked, um, and it was a real that was a real left turn from academia, and it taught me a lesson that a lot of what had been going on within the academic precincts really ignored the marketplace and ignored economics and ignored some of these bigger um, uh, uh, macro trends uh, and how they affected the kind of work that was being made by artists and was being shown. And so that became interesting to me. And then after doing that stint in the commercial space, uh, getting back into academia and with Sotheby's Institute was a great fit because this was one place that obviously was not afraid of the market and it was not afraid of those larger macro issues. And it, interestingly enough, a lot of academia is starting to come more along this along this, this direction. Yeah. So you've, you've hit on a number of key points. I mean, one, just how is Sotheby's Institute different than the perhaps traditional MFA program? Yeah, so uh, we do not have a a let's say a fine art practice uh, degree. Uh, our degree is run more towards art history and connoisseurship, and art business and entrepreneurship, and arts management, and its center of gravity in the nonprofit policy and education space. So the way that I describe it to most people is, we are really about the infrastructure of the art and cultural fields. Uh, we are about the platforms and the institutions and the firms and the mechanisms that make it all happen and make it possible rather than the, uh, the, let's say the, the, the strictly creative side. Um, so our graduates are interested in going into museums. They're interested in starting their own galleries. They're interested in 
uh, arts education programs for inner city kids. They are interested in uh, digital technology for art, whether that's to be talking about it, selling it, um, or uh, uh, cataloging it and creating new ways of, of tracking it, um, both in the contemporary moment and then down through history. And I, I want to come back to one of your new programs specifically, but you mentioned you know, that a lot of uh, education was sort of lagging behind what's going on in the market, but that's starting to change. I mean, how have you seen that change and how has Sotheby's been part of dr that driving force? It's a good question. So I think to be honest, the driving force was the economic crisis in 2008. I think that that was a, a big wake-up call, not just for people interested in the arts, but I think for academia in general, that there was this huge world of finance and economics that um, a lot of fields, particularly within the humanities uh, and in the creative fields, had, had been ignoring. Um, but that plunged everyone into a real concern for understanding these bigger forces in the environment that everybody had sort of known was there. But, you know, when you're off in the ivory tower, you don't have a tendency to really pay close attention to it. So I think 2008 really put a lot of that on the map. Um, and then since then, I think there's been a lot more uh, interest in the conditions of of precarious employment that a lot of artists experience the um uh the the kind of marriage of a laboring class of artists and the one percent that collects and supports a lot of these institutions um so that's become magnified and i'd say the auction house uh and the and the larger art market has simply become um you know a place where a lot of that comes to light right become symptomatic of it and so we're we're well positioned with our relationship to that industry and to the broader academic field to really help be a a, a leader in that space i think yeah this so tangibly though what, what would you say some of the differences are within the traditional schools you know, out of 2008? Like, what are they doing differently? Yeah, well, I think that there's a lot more attention to uh, just simply economics, right? And actually reading some, reading, uh, you know, rather than reading old Marxist texts from the 1960s, actually, you know, paying attention to Joseph Stiglitz and some Nobel laureates and Paul Krugman and people who are talking about larger economic trends today uh, and thinking about how that's affecting what's happening in the in, in the marketplace, um, actually looking at data, right? I mean, I think that there's a there's a sense that um, historians, in particular, people in the humanities more generally, uh, were really much more about reading texts and and hermeneutics and uh, interpretation. Um, and uh, and the, now everyone recognizes, and I think technology has had a lot had a big role to play in this. Data is important, and being able to track and measure um, not just market but uh, uh, audience trends, demographics. Uh, this has become particularly important in our arts management program for things like inclusion and uh, cultural equity. Um, I think all of that is now playing out in the academy in a much bigger way than it had uh, when I was working on a PhD uh, more than a decade ago. Does you, you mentioned earlier that you come, you know, one of your advantages that you are connected to Sotheby's and the auction houses in the market is, is there a, any challenges that come with that or is sort of reluctance maybe from instructors or other, other institutional programs? So it's a good question. So I should be clear that Sotheby's Institute of Art is 
a independent entity. Uh, we have a relationship to the auction house, but we are not formally a part or a division of the auction house's business. Um, and that's something that happened back in 2000 uh, when uh, Sotheby's specifically got rid of a lot of its quote unquote brand extensions. And so um, since about 2001, 2002, Sotheby's Institute has been operating as an independent entity. Um, and that gives us a lot more freedom, both from a business standpoint and from an academic standpoint to pursue areas of inquiry that we want, uh, that gives our faculty the opportunity if they want to be critical of the auction house or critical of auction practices, they certainly can be without any um, uh, uh, fear of retribution or the idea that somehow we're just a marketing arm for this larger brand name. That said, we have a close relationship with a lot of our colleagues at the auction house who, I should add, are some of the foremost experts in their fields, right? And if you want to talk about an area like art law um, and Nazi era restitution, Sotheby's has some of the best attorneys in the best specialists in that field. They lecture all over the world. They come and lecture in our classes. And so that kind of access is really uh, important to us. Um, I think that there's still a stigma out there within the in the in the art world about the 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 depredations of the commercial sphere. A lot of it's often overblown. Sometimes it's not. Um, but I think that uh, that sensibility has begun to wane and we don't have quite the same kind of bias against the programs that we're about um, that, that we used to. And I think a lot of that comes from the idea that uh, people who are interested in arts and culture need to be able to operate in the world as it exists today, not in, a, in necessarily in the world as they imagine it or would simply like it to be. And our students graduate with really uh, some hard-nosed skills that allowed them to operate in the the world the way that the way that it is today, and then to make changes that they that they see that they need to make. Yeah, and those changes though aren't always easy. So it's good that it's it's good that you're arming a lot of them. Being able to build a a, a model and a spreadsheet, and being able to read budgets and understanding where how to how to manage resources when they're scarce is very important within the art and cultural fields. Talk about a place that's got scarce resources but big visibility. You need people who are smart behind the scenes making things happen, and that's that's really what we're we're striving to provide for the people who come through our programs. Yeah, and do you see? I mean, who comes through the programs? Like, you know, are they people who have been in the art world for a while? Are they new to it? Do you see that changing? It's uh. It, it, we get it's it's a diverse group. We get people straight out of uh, art and music and art history programs. We have career changers who are coming in after thirty years uh, in another field who are just really interested in the arts and culture and decide that this is their way um, uh, back into that new career path. Uh, we have 30 to 40 percent international students from Asia, Europe, South America um, who want to come to the United States and learn about the, 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 the U.S. art market uh, and the operations of U.S. institutions on the ground and then take some of those best practices back to their home countries. Um, the LA program specifically is really a Southern California program. Um, we get a lot of our student body from the LA area from Southern California, San Diego. Um, and I'd say beyond that majority California and West coast, as I said before, it's really, um, it's, we are really a, a program that's dedicated to the West coast, our London, our London campus and our New York campus, again, very diverse people coming from all different, different backgrounds, um, different ages and with really different intentions. Some people want to work in the museum field. Some people want to do um, uh, support artist foundations. Other people want to be dealers, advisors, open their own galleries. 
Um, others are really, really dedicated to the nonprofit and the education space and want to figure out ways of, of uh, pushing that forward. Huh, great. One program specifically that excites me, because this is a podcast about the intersection of art and technology, right. is, is you, you're launching, I think it hasn't even launched, an MA in art business information systems and technology. Yes. That's amazing. Yes. Tell me about it. I'm glad you. I'm glad you think so. Um, we think it's. We think it's amazing. Too. I, I, I'm applying. I hope you accept me. <laughs> Excellent. Um, we began this. This is really a uh, an advantage of our partnership with Claremont Graduate University, um, which has a a broad array of of graduate MA and PhD programs, and CGU has a Center for Information Systems and Technology, which grants uh, Masters of Science degrees and PhDs. Um, in this field in information systems technology. Um, through with a colleague of mine at CGU, we began to think about ways of creating um, what we've called these interfield degrees that take the core curriculum from one program, such as art business, and marries it to the core curriculum of another program, like the MS in information systems technology, to provide a truly cross or interdisciplinary uh, set of fields that really allow incoming students to 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 mix and match I think the 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 core um, uh, competencies of all these different academic uh, and professional fields and so this is really the, the one of the pilot programs um, which takes our business and information systems technology and puts them together and the rationale is that at least from my standpoint looking out over the field of arts and culture technology is coming for us all it's coming for every institution. It's coming for every practice. It's coming for every um, type of business and every type of institution that's out there. And if you're not at least conversational in the language of databases and programming, you're going to be at a loss, right? You are going to be subject to the whims of, you hope, the benevolent programmer or the benevolent IT person who just by some stroke of luck is interested in the arts and culture in the same way that you are and vice versa, right? I mean, if you are someone in the, in the, in the IT field um, and you find yourself in a museum or you find yourself in an auction house or you find yourself at a large logistics company that's dealing with fine art um, as, a, as, a, as a growing specialist uh, uh, division of its, of its overall business and its overall revenue, understanding the art business from the inside out, being conversational in that space is going to be incredibly important. And so having people who know the languages of both of those fields is going to, uh, I predict, uh, be extremely important in the, in the coming years. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't agree more. And in some ways, this podcast was about that to the degree of just like you know, less technical, but more raising awareness of what's going on so that people would be interested and dive in and like, oh, I had no idea. Let me go learn about that. Um, so it's great to see, I mean, you're doing that from an educational perspective, but I mean, out of that, like, what, what do you think is going to happen? Like, who, where are these people going to go? What are they going to do after? I mean, you know, what do you see as the benefits that come from it? Yeah. So, 
you know, I, I know it's oh, early. I know it's, it's yeah, yeah, it's still early. I mean, we've just, you know, we've just launched this interfield program, and we have a similar one with our fine art department. So this is the this is really the first kind of program that you can do a, a business and management degree alongside of studio art practice and get something some a kind of equivalent to an MFA, um, but gives you things like finance and accounting and marketing and the and the and management of the studio alongside of it. But for the for the information systems and technology and our business interfield. I I can imagine what I hope is only sort of 25% of the of the opportunities that are out there and I hope that graduates of this program will go on to open up all these new fields but um to give some examples every um every museum and every arts institution out there uh has a digital and web presence has a need to engage their audiences through um uh their smartphones through screens of some sort um and it's not enough anymore to simply have a, a kind of brochure site and to put this content up there and just you know allow people to come in as if it's a billboard on the on the on the web um these days, uh, those museums want to track their audiences much better. They want to interact with their audiences much better. They want to understand their audiences much better. Um, from the standpoint of the artists that are that are doing exhibitions, they've got increasingly complex requirements for the kinds of installations that they are doing. Um, and my sense is that the more you have someone in-house in those institutions who understands, again, both sides of the equation – the better you are going to be able to service those artists, the better you're going to be able to service your audiences. Um, for the example, I know that you've had uh, an artist named Nancy Baker Cahill um, on, on your podcast as well. And she's someone who's working, I really think, at the edge of, of virtual reality and augmented reality with regard to an art practice um, I would love for a graduate of our program to be Nancy's go-to uh, tech support, someone who really understands the operations of her studio, understands her artistic practice from the inside out, and can help her with various different tech solutions that she needs in order to push her practice even further, rather than having for her to rely on someone, again, who just by chance is versed in technology, but also happens to be interested in in, in the field of art. Yeah. Yeah, and I think I mean I, it's I, looking through the curriculum. There's also I mean the examples you gave do allude to this, but there, it's there's an entrepreneurial element. There's like a Absolutely. studio and all that. I mean, selfishly, part of my hope would be that they go out and and create you know platforms and other things that help support artists. Totally, absolutely, um, and that and that's the piece where. I can't even predict, right? Yeah. We run, we run a kind of, we run an entrepreneurship sequence in our programs, in our regular art business and arts management programs. Um, and every fall, they present their new initiatives and their new ventures to panels of professionals from the LA community. And every year, we've got brand new ideas about ways that they can support artist communities, create new funding models for institutions. Create completely new new businesses uh, from from the from the from the tech side, and we had a student uh, a year ago who had um, developed a, a a kind of image capture technology to create three D walk around uh, um, uh, models that were specifically marketed towards galleries and museums mostly for an archival standpoint so that museums could capture their exhibitions in a, in a, in three-dimensional space, um, without just having to rely on 
JPEGs, right? Or just uh, sort of archive of images. And so why wouldn't you want to have a 3D model or uh, this kind of video backup? Um, so those kinds of things. And, I, and, and this program, increasingly, there were more and more digital solutions, technology solutions that our students were coming up with and that, but the thing that they were, that we couldn't provide them um, at the time was the, 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 the core training in the information systems. And, and now we can do that. And so I think that we'll have those students really now have access to that, that material in a way that they didn't before. And we'll see even more um, uh, innovative and interesting solutions coming out. I want to take a quick break to tell you more about our Patreon page. As you know, here at State of the Art, we want to build the art and tech community, increase the conversation, and we love bringing you guests from across the art and tech world. But the thing is, there's so much more we want to do. We want to continue to bring you great guests. We want to do live podcasts. We want to increase the frequency. To do that, though, we need your support. Visit our page at patreon.com slash state of the art. Pledge just a dollar and you'll get access to exclusive content, behind the scenes footage, and a chance to be our super fan of the week. And let me tell you, this is pretty cool. Super fans will get a shout out on next week's episode and a chance to show your art and tech thoughts, events, or whatever within our social feeds. So go to patreon.com slash state of the art and become one of our patrons today. Now back to the episode. I see this from, from being in this space for a while and from the podcast that it's, um, you know, that I'll say this, like there's a lack of sort of technological wherewithal in, in, within this whole space, you know, and, 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 you know, you have some where they come from a technology background, but not an art background and vice versa. And still those, even within the sort of art and tech companies, platforms haven't kind of melded together. And so yeah. having, having someone that understands that, that kind of is willing to push the boundaries, um, is, uh, you know, I think it's just, is good for the space. Like all these, like you mentioned, all these different types of business models and who knows what will happen with it. That's right. And, and again, from, from our standpoint, it really comes from having, having a deeper understanding of the, the tech itself, right? Mm -hmm. and, and a lot of our students at least currently come in with a deep understanding of the arts. They've been either artists themselves, they've, um, they've been involved in either their own artistic practices or somebody else's artistic practices, or they've been acting as a curator, or they've been a musician, or they've been a dancer. And they've gotten involved in an administrative capacity, and they've done some marketing, or they've done some, uh, some management work uh, on top of all of that. And then it comes time to say, well, well, what are the ways that we can think creatively about distributing what we're doing to a, a broader audience yeah. what's the way uh how do we how do we capture this differently how do we um how do we use technology to extend both the creative side and the and the management side um and i think that beyond simply the kind of training my hope is that a program like this will create an environment in which 
those students can begin to ask those questions, those kind of fundamental questions, um, and begin to explore the boundaries, not just between uh, the, the tech space and the art space, but explore the boundaries that are opened up or become visible when you combine these things in a kind of core way. And again, trying to predict what that is going to look like is, is I think, going to be difficult right now. I think we're only at the we're only at the front end of it, right? I mean, I think Agreed. there's a ton of interesting things that are happening. I think, you know- We're at the tipping point, but we're not there yet. Yeah, that's right, that's right. Why, why do you think technology companies are increasingly interested in the art and culture space, right? Like Google has a cultural institute where they came up with that selfie part of yep. their app and the tilt brush and then, you know, Snapchat work with Jeff Koons. I think the uh, uh, visual art uh, today has a has a big big presence on the world stage, uh, not just because of the money involved, um, but because of the the talent that uh, that is out there and the kinds of projects that are being done on on ever bigger scales. And I think that the people that in the in the in the tech fields understand that. Right, they see it, and uh, they recognize that there's a uh, that there's opportunity there um, to connect with their audiences and to uh, create new opportunities and new ways of of interacting. Um, you know, maybe it was like music 20 years ago, um, uh, or literature 50 years ago. Um, but, uh, today, uh, visual art seems to be the thing that's got the biggest cachet. Uh, it's why, you know, some of the big music stars obviously are incorporating artists into their songs. It's why you have these, in, these collaborations between artists and entertainers of all sorts. So, um, uh, I think that the, the, the tech folks are simply hopping on board. Yeah, in a way, some of the technology is caught up perhaps with screens and video being more prevalent. Absolutely. The visual component can't be, can't be denied, right? I mean, the, the, that all of these are fundamentally, in some sense, a bunch of visual mediums. Snap and Facebook, obviously, are pushing video really, really hard. Um, and so I think that that can, can only be good for artists uh, and, uh, and, and what they're up to. You talked about, I mean, how even, you know, sort of musicians and rappers and celebrities are mentioning artists, you know, artists are working with more brands, you see that and perhaps working with like Google and Snapchat. I mean, do you see artists career paths changing or attitudes changing? I hope so. Uh, I have a colleague uh, named Sharon Loudon, uh, a good friend who has published a couple of books uh, that she's edited, um, which are stories about artists in various different kinds of practices, uh, uh, creating and sustaining um, uh, their 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 work. Um, and, and it's, and it's so different from the image that so many people still have about the artist in their studio alone, working on a discrete object that then somehow goes out into the world, finds a buyer or finds an institution that wants to put it on a wall. Uh, artists today are involved in so many interesting collaborations, complex projects, um, that cross over all these different sectors from education to environment, to energy, to social justice issues. They're making films. Um, they are making music. They are engaging in fashion. So I think that that there's a kind of capacious, uh, um, uh, omnivorous, uh, maybe some sense entitled attitude that a lot of visual artists have about entering any field and, that that has just given them access or the sort of license to go out and do all these things. And the museums and the institutions have, have been very supportive of that, right? I mean, they've, they've allowed for 
things that happen um, uh, in the museum today look very different than things that happened in the museum even 30 years ago. Yeah. And so I, you know, I, I think that, 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 that is really changing the way it's beginning to change the way that people think about what artists do and how they work and what it means to be a, a practicing artist today, whether you're a visual artist or a performer or a, a musician. Yeah, and I, I think I think you're right, but it seems to me that the attitude, really, especially within the institutions of, of schools and traditional MFAs, is just changing or still having a way to go because it seems like a lot of students are still coming out with a reluctance to what they perceive as selling out. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I, I think that's right, and um, and I think that there's a combination of that because there's a. Even if it's less now, a kind of antipathy to the marketplace. I think now there is more of a of a push for art to be engaged or committed politically and socially, um, and that political and social commitment um, is often at odds with the uh, larger corporate or larger uh, moneyed interests. Um, but it's not necessarily contradictory. Um, you know, they don't, they don't have to move, uh, at cross purposes. And I think we've seen a lot of companies, um, uh, more mission driven today than they used to be. Uh, now value is not just something they need to deliver to their shareholders, but is a value they need to deliver to their environment, to their customers, to their communities and other things like that. Yeah. Um, and so, and so I think, I think the educational environment is, is, is really, beginning to move more towards the political and social commitments. And I think that's a good thing. Um, and I think the, the practitioners who are really good in those spaces are ones who also are imparting to their students that in order to do this kind of work, you have to have a better sense of how the world itself works. You have to understand how to put together budgets. You have to understand how to draw an audience. You have to understand how to interact with um, uh, your community and your government uh, agencies. And all of that is creating, a, 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 I'd say, a more well-rounded and a, a, a sort of bigger sensibility on the part of the artist rather than, again, go into the studio, make a painting, come yeah. out with it. And that, that's the definition of being an artist. Great. So I read in a blog post you did in 2016, I think it was your last blog post, you made three predictions. <laughs> I'm wondering, I mean, you don't have to revisit those and if they came true, but I, I want here first to hear what are your what are your predictions of 2018 or the next five years, specifically thinking about art and tech? I mean, there's, you know, platforms and yeah. crypto and blockchain yeah. and VR. Yeah. Like, what are you excited about? What's going to happen? So um, it's funny that you mentioned that. I was just thinking about that myself because I think I hadn't looked at that in a while, but I think in one of those predictions, I was talking about a new ideology of inclusivity. Yeah. Uh, and that had more to do with the way that artists would work and use technology as, as kind of creating bits and pieces of collaborations and, and forming different sort of temporary teams of artists rather than a, a sort of single um, operator. Uh, but I think at the end of that, I, I wrote that, that everyone will be included Included. And uh, I, even though it wasn't the exact same, I felt vindicated when Frances McDormand, uh, you know, mentioned inclusion writer at the end of her speech in the Academy Awards uh, on Sunday. Um, because again, I think this inclusion is going to be a kind of, um, uh, uh, again, I, I don't know, ideology has a kind of sinister sensibility to it, but inclusion will be an overriding sensibility that people um, will be thinking about going forward. Um, from the technology side, 
you know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, two years ago, uh, VR and AR hadn't yet really uh, had the 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 um, the uh, presence that all of a sudden they seem to have. Um, I mentioned that only because, again, from from our student standpoint, we had uh, these entrepreneurship projects one year where there were zero VR and AR applications to the next year. I think there, there were five or six, right, oh. in the space of 12 months. It yeah. just it's picked up. So I think that we're going to see a lot more in that area. Um, and I think right now everything seems to be about the blockchain as well. Um, a lot of people are looking at the blockchain from the standpoint of things like provenance and uh, um, uh, being able to archive and track works of art and uh, purchase histories um, and ownership histories. That's interesting, but that seems like a pretty – that's the application of a, of, a, of a new technology to an old problem. I'll be interested to see what kinds of new uh, problems or new applications these technologies actually create for people going forward. And then that I don't have any good predictions, but um, uh, I'd say if I had any, any big, big predictions, I think I think we're going to continue to see a shift to Asia. Um, and I think we're going to see some challenges to big institutions. I think the big institutional models, um, uh, the big museums are going to increasingly find themselves at odds with their audiences and the artists who operate within them. So I don't know what that's going to look like, but I think we're going to see more attention paid to artists themselves and individual practices and the museum environment and the performing arts environment will shift away from the kind of big names and more towards smaller startups and, and, and different kind of um, uh, trending environments. Well, that's exciting. Are there any specific projects? I mean, you mentioned Nancy Cahill and what yeah. she's doing. Are there others out there that you that you're excited about, or you think are really worth looking into? Uh, it's a you, you've caught me off guard there. Nancy's really the one that I've been focusing on most, and 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 showing to a bunch of people. You know, there was a project, and I should say that the, the sort of technology thing. Um, uh, uh, it's not as if Nancy's the first artist to to launch a, a, a an app. Um, and, uh, of course now the artist's name is going to escape me. He's a brilliant photographer and filmmaker who shows with David Zwerner, um, in New York. Um, uh, uh, it's not, is it Stan Douglas? I don't think it's Stan Douglas. Um, but, uh, showed this fantastic, um, uh, application, maybe it is Stan Douglas based in Vancouver, um, did this wonderful, uh, um, app two years ago that was a kind of uh, interactive narrative storytelling um, history of Vancouver, and you could you could sort of zoom into these neighborhoods, and they would have these kinds of ghostly presences that would come in and 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 talk about what had happened in that in that place a um, uh, hundred years ago uh, uh, at the sort of turn of the century, I think. Um, so I, I, I'm really th these there's certain artists out there who I think. Uh, really doing incredible work in terms of storytelling, um, and I and I'm I'm very interested to see what happens um, with that kind of new narrative prospects that digital technologies yeah. of another will will have. Um, Even just video makes it easier to tell your story. I mean, what Nancy did, I I completely agree. What um you're a you're you're a business guy. You're teaching business. Are there any of the sort of companies out there, the artsies and the palettes that you'd put your money behind? Two things. One, if there's a company that could really get a universal um, uh, archive or registry 
whether they're using blockchain technology or not. I think the challenge there is to get the big institutions on board that really have the the the, the deep collections and have a lot of the a lot of that information already. Um, but if there was someone out there who could really create a centralized database that was easily accessible um, and distributed in the way that people could use it, then I would I would get on board for that. I think that's one of the big pieces. The other the other technology I haven't seen, but if there's some way. Um, there are people who have been after it, uh, creating a kind of tech technological fingerprint for works of art to combat, um, uh, fakes and forgeries. I think there's a lot of, there's probably a lot of money in that too. All right. Everyone listening, here you go. Get after it. Actually, art finder, which is now an online marketplace. They started as like an IMDB of, of art. Yeah. That's what they were trying to do. Okay. This has been too much fun. I got to let you go. Cause I know you got a lot going on before I do though. Can we do a quick rapid fire? I'm going to catch you off guard okay. again. All right. Sure. If you could have one superpower, what would it be and why? Uh, the ability to predict the future, and it would make everything a lot easier. There you go. When do you, when do you, when do you think art will be as popular as music? What year? Uh, I think I think I think uh, nineteen seventy nine. <laughs> oh, it's it's already happened. I think I think art is as popular as music. All right, that's that's a first. If you were able to be a new color in the crayon box, what would it be and why? Oh, um, I would try and be an invisible marker that would erase. Ooh, that's a good one. All right. All right. I like that. Like a, like a, like a camouflage color that would simply allow you to sort of airbrush yourself out. There's something deep there that I think we could explore in the next podcast. <laughs> Jonathan, thank you so much. This has been great. Ethan, thank you. This has been fun. So don't forget to follow Jonathan on Twitter at JTDNeal or via his website, jonathantdneal.com. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review it. Leaving a review is super easy and it helps listeners like you discover the podcast. Oh yeah, and don't forget to check us out at State of the Art on Twitter for behind the scenes photos, a sneak peek to next week's episode, and really cool art videos you're gonna wanna show your friends. Until next week, this is your host, Ethan Appleby, signing off from State of the Art.